and welcome to today's episode of The Sound Off on School Safety, presented by Safe and Sound Schools. My name is Alyssa Parker, and I am the co-founder and director of Outreach for Safe and Sound Schools. Joining us today is a special guest and friend of mine, Dr. C.J. Huff, former superintendent of the Joplin, Missouri School District. On May 22nd in 2011, An EF-5 tornado with winds in excess of over 200 miles per hour destroyed or damaged 10 of the 19 buildings in his school district, leaving over half his students without a school to return to on May 23rd. The Joplin community suffered loss more precious than buildings, though. In just 32 minutes, that powerful storm killed 161 people and injured over a thousand others, including a staff member and seven students. Today, we're going to discuss his powerful story and some of the takeaways we can apply today while school communities across the country work to return to school in the fall. CJ, thank you so much for joining me today. You bet. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you have quite a history in your work with schools and as an educator. Um, You didn't start in administration. You started as a teacher, right? Uh, Actually, if you go way back, I started out as a farmer. I I farmed for eight eight years before I actually got into education. So I was kind of a a late bloomer into education. Uh, So I farmed in Southeast Kansas and and uh, did that for a number of years and was doing that with my dad and grandpa and decided to get into education a little bit later. Uh, I got my first uh, teaching job when I was about 26 and uh, started teaching uh, third grade and taught third and fourth grade, did a little bit of Title I reading and then moved into an assistant principalship in an elementary school and um, eventually moved up to the principalship and got my first superintendent job in Eldon, Missouri, which is up by Lake of the Ozarks. If you're familiar with the Ozarks movie or the TV show uh, on Netflix, uh, you know, that's that's the area I was in and uh, was there for four years and then had the opportunity in 2008 to um, to come back to Joplin, Missouri, uh, which has some history for me as well. I met my, my, my wife and I, uh, our first date was to Joplin and we have you know, a lot of family in the area and it's not far from where I grew up. Uh, so I got to come back to Joplin and uh, serve as superintendent of schools. Uh, here for seven years, starting in 2008 and retired in 2015. So on May 22nd, 2011, the day of the tornado, can you kind of describe for us the events leading up to that day? You know, what would have been going on? What did it, you know, were you aware that, you know, this was a possibility? How much warning did you receive? You know, just what was going on in your community that, that day? Yeah, so it was a Sunday, actually. Uh, May 22nd, 2011 was a, a Sunday, and, and I'd say thank goodness. Um, most, most families were at home, with the exception of the fact that we were holding our graduation ceremonies on, on May 22nd. But, um, those started at uh, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon that day, and uh, we were aware that they were calling for some, some uh, severe thunderstorms. And, and, uh, but we live in the Midwest. You don't, can, you don't cancel graduation ceremony, especially an indoor graduation ceremony due to thunderstorms. We get those pretty regularly. So we, we proceeded and um, uh, we held our graduation ceremonies, kicked it off um, three o'clock, uh, ended promptly at five o'clock. We, we right, right at five, maybe a couple minutes uh, until five. Uh, everything was going great. Um, did a couple quick television interviews with uh, local news media, 
Uh, obviously, they weren't aware of any any dangers because they didn't even ask me about anything at that point. It was just strictly, you know, associated with uh, my feelings on the day related to graduation. So uh, it was a great day of celebration. You know, everybody was excited. Uh, one of the largest graduating classes we've had in a long time as a direct result of all the work we've done to improve graduation rates. And and so we're really proud of that. And um, and so it was a really exciting day. But uh, uh, wrap, wrap things up and, and I was trying to get home and, and so I left um, the facility at Missouri Southern State University at uh, 517. I know that because as I was walking out of the back door of the facility, my phone rang. I looked down at my phone, it was my mother-in-law. And um, uh, and at the same time, I could hear the tornado sirens in the background and my, my mother-in-law um, asked if I was okay and I said, yeah, I hear the sirens, what's going on? She said that uh, there was a tornado spotted around Carl Junction, Missouri, which is, which just north of Joplin and and so you know I, I could see where the storm was at and I know how those kind of storms tend to travel uh, from from uh, south southwest to, to, to north northeast typically and so I hopped in my car because I live south in town and I didn't seek shelter a lot of people that were there did and um, um, I, I drove home and um, got got to uh, my uh, subdivision uh, to take a left turn into the subdivision and um, everything everything had been fine up to that point you know I could see that there was a storm ahead of me uh, they weren't talking about it on the radio or anything but as I started to turn into my subdivision the world kind of changed around me um, a tree broke broke off in half in front of me another one went down in front of me uh, as I turned left the wind switched directions that was coming out of the coming out of the uh, east I guess which is unusual uh, probably 100, 100 miles an hour plus. It was strong enough. It was, it was dragging some pretty good sized branches across the ground uh, from my light, left to my right into what I know now is, you know, the, the tornado that, that hit Joplin. Um, you know, got, got home. I was fortunate I was able to get home. Um, you know, did some damage to the car, but I was able to get, get in the house and, and uh, ride it out in the basement with my wife. <clears throat> and um, you know we 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 expect tornadoes in our our area. I mean, it happens, and sometimes towns get hit, but they're usually F one, F two, F three, maybe on on a serious scale. Uh, ro takes off roofs here and there, maybe take off a take a house off the foundation, do some damage, and kind of hops and skips around. Um, but For the, those who don't know what F five is, what is an F five? F5 tornado, I think most people are familiar with, with uh, hurricanes, and if it's a Category 5 hurricane, everybody knows that's a bad deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Category 5 uh, tornado on, on that scale is, 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 rel is the same. Uh, category 5, I believe, when it hits about 180 miles an hour, uh, wind gusts uh, or winds, sustain, sustained wind, that's when, when um, uh, you get into to an F5. And some of the characteristics they look for in addition to uh, damage to homes. They look, you know, they look at the structures, and 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 one of the things they look at is, are the trees. What does it do to a tree? And uh, an EF5 tornado, it, it rips not only does it rip all the branches off the tree, but it strips the bark off the trees too. And uh, that's what um, that's what we saw. That's what we saw all all over Joplin. It, it looked like toothpicks sticking up in the ground everywhere, where the branches were broken off, and the bark um, on the trees was was stripped down to the to the to to the to the wood and um you know that's that's kind of a surreal thing to see and you know you think about that kind of damage and what it does to, to something as hard as a tree you think about what it can do to people uh that maybe get caught in that and um you know that's that's it's a very scary thing so so in ef5 um, in our case it was winds about 200 miles an hour um got out of the basement um, 
after the fact. Our home was undamaged. We were very fortunate. A little bit of roof damage, but nothing, nothing serious at all. And um, got to uh, jump back in the car, put on some work clothes because I knew that there had been a tornado. So you know, just expecting to go out and help neighbors clean up shingles and that kind of thing. And that's you know what we typically see. And uh, we got to the subdivision where I came in and, and could see the damage uh, there. It was pretty significant, and, but we couldn't get out because it was blocked by power lines. So we went out the opposite direction out of our subdivision. Uh, it took us about, oh, I think it was about 30 minutes or so to get back to that street we were trying to get to because the traffic was so heavy. You know, the emergency personnel coming in, first responders, uh, family members that were looking for, for, you know, that were coming in to, to, to you know, help family, volunteers, what have you. And so when we, we finally got a visual of the debris field, we were actually up kind of up on a hill and we could see a long ways in both directions. And you know, the, the scene is hard to describe, but um, it, if you can just imagine a town that had exploded and you know, from as far as you could see, that's what it looked like. I mean, there was nothing standing uh, anywhere as far as I could see to my left or my right. Um, there was uh, the only, you know, the biggest, biggest uh, facility that you could see that was standing was um, um, Mercy Hospital, which was, I believe, an eight or nine story facility uh, that took a direct hit. So it was still standing, but um, it was, you know, smoke, there was smoke, there was, you know, all the windows were blown out of it. Uh, learned after the fact that it had been moved off its foundation, I think four or five inches off its foundation. Wow. Imagine that. Um, but the, but the, the point is the damage was, was significant. And um, I also realized at that time that I had a number of schools that would have laid in that, that debris field and, and knew that several of them had been hit. I could see some smoke off in the distance, actually fire, fire plume off in the distance. And uh, what I didn't what, at the time, I didn't know it, but uh, after the fact, I learned that was my, my technical school uh, when the gas lines had, had, had um, erupted uh, in the technical school. So it, it, was, um, it was burning. And uh, so our high school, 2200 student high school, took a direct hit. It was a total loss. Our technical center, which was right across the street, was a total loss. Um, uh, our um, one of our elementary schools, uh, Irving Elementary School, which you know is the epitome of those buildings built in the 1920s, double brick, thick walls, uh, you know, WPA type projects. And those old, old, you know, just built built like a, a, a vault, basically took the top floor completely off of it. Um, where we would have probably had kids sheltering in place had it been during during uh, the school day. You know how we all all you know used to. That, I don't know if you guys do it in the Midwest. You, you know, they do tornado drills, um, and you go to the hallways and do duck and cover. You know, you put your you cover your head and you get down on your knees, and and uh, we've done that for for decades, even when I was in school. Um, but uh, you know, the loss of life in, in our schools that day would have been had it had it happened during the school day, it would have been uh, more more than I could have handled uh, personally. Um, you know, as a superintendent of the schools and feeling that level of responsibility. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that if it was going to happen, that it happened when it did. But uh, all total, we had uh, 10 buildings that were hit. Uh, I believe seven of those were destroyed and, and uh, r roughly um, around $125, $30 million worth of damage to our school system as a whole. All, as you mentioned in the opening, we lost seven students and a staff member. Um, in, in the tragedy and the trauma beyond that from a mental and behavioral health perspective was, was uh, long, short and long term was pretty significant to deal with as well. So there were a lot of, you know, after, you know, you, and I didn't go to school to become a, become a leader of a recovery effort or response effort like that. But, uh, you know, you get, you get thrown into it. You have to, you have to figure it out. And I was just blessed to have a great team and a great community 
uh, behind us that made that possible. Now, I found it really interesting that only days after the tornado, you made a really bold declaration to your school community. And you said that we will start on time. Now, why was that important to say in that moment? And, and you know, what were you hoping to convey to your community at that point? Yeah, it, for me, I, there, there were a couple things going on. One, um, you know, I, I could see right away that from a leadership perspective that, that we were all scrambling to try to figure out what's next, what's next, what's, what's our first step forward. And, and I really struggled, frankly, those first 24, 36 hours, and of course, not having to sleep uh, to boot. And it's, it's, it's like everybody else in our community, just trying to figure out what, what you just got punched in the nose and got knocked out, basically. And you're trying to, you know, trying to, you know, get a sense of what's going on around you. And, and, and there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of um, angst, you know, we'd hired, you know, this is May. I mean, we'd hired a lot of teachers for this upcoming school year. We had just issued teacher contracts, but here we are, half of our district is completely demolished and people are asking questions about, well, what about next year? Are the kids going to, are we going to have school? Do I still have a job? And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I knew that, you know, there, there were a lot of things going through my head, but, but you know, I came, came to the realization pretty quickly that, that they, needed, they needed some level of comfort that we were going to get back to normal, number one. And two, for my, my leadership team, uh, you know, it was important for them to, to, to start thinking beyond just the here and now and start looking forward. So it was really about just casting that vision, and it was just really simple. I mean, you know, we, we just approved the school calendar that month. And we were scheduled to start school on August 17th. And, and um, in my heart, um, I felt like we could make it, um, you know, just knowing the quality of people we had, uh, if, we, if we pushed it really hard. And I knew how important that would be to our community and, and especially our kids. I mean, when you think about the level of destruction and the fact that families were displaced, scattered everywhere, and, and you know, they needed some place to be. And we had to have, you know, they needed a safe place to go. School, schools is that place. And so, you know, on top of just opening school on August 17th, we also had a vision for getting our summer school up and operational two weeks later, which we did, and had record summer, summer school enrollment because parents needed someplace to go with their kids so they could deal with their, the, the response and recovery effort that was ongoing for months. So, you know, there were all those factors, you know, as part, part you know, trying to inspire some hope in our community that at some point in time we would get back to uh, some, you know, some, some semblance of normalcy. Um, you know, making sure that we didn't lose our families because that was a fear, a real legitimate fear that, that we would lose um, a significant portion of our community. I mean, a third of our community was destroyed. Where are they going to go? And so, you know, just, just trying to, to, you know, set that, set that expectation that, that we were, you know, we were going to come back and, uh, step, you know, trying to create some hope among those that were seeking that. And also, you know, giving the charge to my to my leadership team so that they they knew that we were ready to move forward so we need to be thinking about that and and frankly for myself as well i needed i needed that and um so you know there were a lot of factors went into making that declaration but but um you know looking back you know it was it difficult was it hard was it challenging absolutely would i have done that again I, yeah absolutely it was the right thing to do for kids in the community at that time and and that uh, we made it happen together and I think that there is something really powerful to be said for that hope and giving people something to focus on when there's so much to see that you almost need to have a goal right in front of you to be able to work towards because otherwise I feel like 
just the vast <laughs> array of, of issues could almost be just impairing, completely impairing. Well, there's so much loss, so much loss. I mean, our families, we had families, that lost, not only lost family members, which was tragic, but lost their home, lost their church, lost their school, everything that, you know, lost family pets, vehicles, everything that these kids and families knew was, was in disarray. And, and, you know, one thing that, that uh, natural disasters, and I think COVID, you know, to a large degree too, you know, this current environment we're in is that, that, that quickly we find our all, all find all, all of us, regardless of socioeconomic levels, regardless of ethnic backgrounds, where we live, we all, all of a sudden we're, you know, we're on all in the same boat and we're trying to figure, figure this stuff out together. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's been, um, you know, and looking back, just, just seeing that and, and how it impacted everybody and everybody that, you know, even, even if you had means, suddenly you found yourself um, with, without the resources to take care of your family because everything was taken from you you know, what, what do you do? But, it, but, you know, it was a beautiful thing to watch how the community rallied around us. It was a beautiful thing to watch how, how the nation rallied around us. And, and, um, and, and frankly, people from around the world that, that responded to our, our catastrophe and, and, and helped make a difference in, in the lives of, of the children and the families that we served in the school system, um, you know, and as well as helping with direct cleanup and, and recovery work from that standpoint. Now you mentioned COVID nineteen, and and I wanted to, you know, kind of tie that in because I feel like there's some really important principles that can be kind of related back to what we're experiencing today. You know, how does the reopening of schools and communities nationwide? How is it similar or dissimilar to reopening the reopening of schools in Joplin back in 2011 for you? Yeah, similar and dissimilar. It, it, I would say in one, one respect, you know, for us, you know, setting that date for start, restarting school was important. Uh, we also knew there was a possibility we may not hit that mark, but, but we knew that if we had a, we, we planted a flag in the ground that, uh, that would be all marching towards that. And if we, if we missed the mark, we probably wouldn't miss it by very much. So that was, you know, that was part of it. With COVID, I think what makes that really challenging is we don't know what the situation is going to be. Uh, come uh, you know August September when schools start start reopening, what what's you know what's the status of that going to be? What what federal or state um, guidance or 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 um, um, requirements are going to be issued that that have to be followed by school districts that could change? You know, throw all your plans up up in the air and, and you may, you know may not be able to come back to school. So I think I think from a contingency standpoint, schools are forced to have to figure out more contingencies than, than what we had to figure out. Um, and, and there's a lot, lot more uncertainty, I guess, um, as you move forward. And, and with uncertainty comes a tremendous amount of stress and angst uh, related to that. So, you know, we, we were highly motivated in, in the fact that in our particular case, it was a relatively isolated uh, incident. So we were able to get support from our local communities uh, around us, as well as the state and federal response, uh, you know, that that was different than in this particular scenario. We're all kind of in the same boat together, paddling together and in, in, in the resources and support that we need. You know, we support each other, you know, on the phone and we care, you know, care for each other and we have webinars, we have conversations and we, you know, we do, we're doing all these things to, to support one another. But we're all we're all in the same boat and we're all, all struggling with the same lack of resources and the same uh, lack of uncertainty. So it's that that makes this, I think, this uh, particular um, situation probably more challenging 
uh, to, to, to a degree on that, on that level anyway, when you start thinking about, about school uh, starting. But, but again, I think, I think what I'm seeing um, from school leaders um, and, and, you know, reflect on my own personal experience, you know, there's some things we did well and some things we didn't do well. And, um, you know, my advice or takeaway, if you will, as you think about COVID, uh, you know, casting that vision is still very important. I think it's important that people know that the school will get started again someday and it will, it will. Um, you know, and I think, I think along with that though, is the communication would be the other takeaway is, is communicating very clearly, not only the vision, but what the plans are and engaging, uh, engaging your community, your broader school community in as many ways as possible in some of the decision-making, uh, that has to take place in order to make, make school as good as it possibly can be for our kids this fall. So, so it's, it's, it's about vision casting, no question about that, and assuring people that we will get there. And, but in the meantime, you know, we need to plan for all, all possible scenarios and, and eliciting support from, uh, from the broader community, students included, uh, to get a sense of, um, of uh, what that's going to look like uh, this coming year. So you know, just, just saying you're going to start school on August 17th like we did uh, doesn't, doesn't make it happen, and, and it doesn't, doesn't articulate what that's going to look like. Um, so, you know, you kind of, kind of set that vision first and, and then you figure out day by day what that's going to look like from this point forward and, and, and while at the same time planning for multiple contingencies. One of the things that really strikes me whenever I talk to you about your work and your work in the school districts and your work thereafter, um, is your passion for supporting our students. You've kind of started a whole new chapter since you retired as superintendent, and you founded a not-for-profit called Bright Futures USA. Can you tell us a little bit about Bright Futures and your mission as an organization? Yeah, so uh, Bright Futures USA, it was actually born, born in Joplin. Uh, we, we had uh, uh, started doing that work well, well prior to the tornado uh, and, that, and that same you know, the year, year prior. And it's um, a framework that we, we developed in Joplin with collaboration of community partners to kind of build it out. But it's really about uh, you know, meeting kids' basic needs in a 24-hour period by tapping into the time, talent, and treasure of the community and, and referencing the faith community, human service agencies, our business community, and, and working with parents and families to support kids so that they have what they need so they can be successful in school on a daily basis. But um, uh, the, the, the other elements of that also include building leadership capacity in the community and setting up structures to, to lead that effort and sustain that effort over the long term, both in terms of leadership and resources. And the third piece is service learning, giving kids that opportunity to give back to the communities that are giving to them as part of that process. So, you know, the, the work that we were doing before the disaster, and I think what we didn't really even realize we were doing from a resiliency standpoint was we were we were exercising those those I refer to them as those resiliency muscles yeah, um, yeah. To, to create that muscle memory through through the building establishing and, and, and use of net use of our network and relationships we established to create systems of support uh, for, for children and families and we were doing that before the disaster and, and uh, when the disaster struck um, it was just amazing to see how what we had put in place um, ramped up, you know, it didn't change anything really, it just ramped up the, our effort. And now we had more resources coming into our community. We had more volunteers who were coming in the community. And we, all had, well, we already had all the processes set up to, uh, um, to uh, uh, direct all those resources in the right place so we'd get those resources to families that needed it as quickly as possible. So, 
you know, it really, it really worked out. It was kind of fortuitous, I guess, uh, that we, we were, you know, we already had that in place, you know, prior to our disaster. Um, you know, would we have recovered? Absolutely, had it not been in place, but it certainly made our recovery much, much easier. And, uh, and the other thing that it did uh, was as a direct result of all the relationship building that we'd done prior to the disaster, it made it so much easier for me to just pick up the phone and talk to people in our community when I needed, when I needed support for a particular thing. So being able to just pick up the phone and talk to, you know, the CEO of the local electric company because of our relationship that we, we built over that, that previous year and say, hey, I could really use some help getting some power to this, to this one school that we need operational here in the next two weeks. Can you, can you help me out? And, and he, he knew where I was coming from. He knew my heart. He knew, knew my love for passion for kids. And um, there was no, there was none of this, hey, we're just, we're going to, we're going to get to know each other on this phone call, but I need some help from you. Uh, you know, it wasn't, we weren't exchanging business cards uh, the day of the disaster. We, that had been done months, months and months in advance and probably had had, had coffee and, and uh, meals together too. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's all about relationships at the end of the day. And that's what, that's what carries you through these, these hard times, the relationships you have with, with one another and with your peers and in the broader community. So that's, that's, uh, it's never too late. It's kind of like planting a tree, you know, and people say, well, when should you start that work? Well, you should have started it yesterday, but, but uh, if, if you're going to plant, plant a tree, you can plant one today too. <laughs> still, it's, it's still all good. So, There's still yeah. Time. Still, still time. Still time. So, you know, because of your extensive experience in education related to recovery efforts after a large scale natural disaster, not only were you in a leadership position in Joplin, Missouri, but you have really helped other communities who've gone through, you know, those large scale disasters as well. You were there, you know, just to name a few, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, Hurricane Harvey in Texas, Hurricane Michael in Florida, and the Campfire uh, Wild fires in California. And so as you kind of look back and, and reflect on your efforts in Joplin, you know, how did that help your efforts in working with these other communities? You know, what were the lessons learned that you were able to pass on and what were the similarities in those recovery efforts that you saw? Yeah, I, th I think across all those disasters, and I even see it with COVID as well. I mean, there's, there are a lot of similarities. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think, you know, the experience I had in Joplin and when I go into communities and, 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 you know, case of Puerto Rico, an entire island or the case of Texas, entire coastline that, that was, you know, larger than most states in, in the country. Um, you know, it's the first thing you, you bring to the table is empathy. I mean, we've been there, we've lived it. Um, we, we know what it's like to go through that. We know what it's like to work with state and federal um, offices as a part of the recovery effort. We know what, what it feels like when, when, um, you know, when, when people are coming to you asking for answers that you don't have answers to. I mean, we, we, we know, we know how that feels. So, so I have, I, you know, that, that's the first thing I always bring is just empathy and, and just, just taking the time to listen to, to the people on the ground and, and uh, talking to school leaders and, and kind of get a sense of where they're at. Uh, the second thing I, I think that that I bring that uh, you know I tell you that you know we did we did a lot of things right in Joplin. There's some things that we didn't do right. Uh, communication, you know, talking about communication, the importance of that. We communicated very very well in the early months uh, after the disaster, but as time went on, we we scaled that back and we shouldn't have. We didn't think people were interested, but uh, at that point, because everybody was so tired of you know mm -hmm. just tired of dealing with with recovery, you know, months and months into it. 
And uh, you know, so maintaining that effective communication and, and, and really working with your internal and external stakeholders with that. And then the other, probably third, and, and maybe even the most important element in all of this is just, just that self-care piece. You know, what, what do you do to take care of yourself as, as you're going through um, and, and leading, leading a crisis situation? And as, as uh, you know, I, tell, I tell school leaders, you know, that, that rhythm of, of recovery is all over the place. You, you take off a sprinter's pace and, and, and as a direct result of the response and you know, people see you in a leadership role at that point and um, they, they need answers and they need some assurances and they, they wanna make sure that you know, everything's gonna be okay. And so you just work yourself into the ground trying to take care of everybody. And it's almost like you put on that Superman cape and and uh, and forgetting that we're, we're not bulletproof. We don't have, you know, we can't shoot laser beams from our eyes, right? Um, so, um, you know, it's just not, not that easy. You just can't, you can't turn back time. You can't do all those things that super Superman can do. So we're, we're still human and is the point. And, um, and because of that, you know, we, we tend to, we tend to over, we overdo it. And, and as we overdo it, those people that work with us, you know, like in my case, you know, we, we hired, we had some great people on our team. And they saw how hard I was working. And, and when you hire good people and they see you working extra hours and, and working seven days a week, all hours of the day and night, what are they going to do? They're going to do the same thing. And, uh, and what about the people that, that follow them? What are they going to do? They're going to do the same thing. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you just, you just work yourself on the ground and, and for all the right reasons. But, but really what you're doing is, uh, um, is really, um, you know, wearing everybody out. Um, and, and, and just really practicing that self-care and being open about, um, you know, the self-care piece and why it's important and encouraging and, and, and being a good role model in that is, is uh, critical during these times. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of school leaders recently, and one thing I sense very uh, strongly in all of them is this feeling of just feeling just hopeless. Just, I, I don't know what to expect coming in the next coming months and that uncertainty and the inability to really control a lot of these variables. Um, that's a really hard thing as a leader (laughs) to kind of grapple with. So what message would you like to send them? Like what would having gone through this and seeing other communities go through this, what would you tell those that are feeling hopeless right now? A few things. One, if you haven't created a vision, do that. You know, cast that vision for what what schools can look like for your kids, and, and focus in on kids and what you can do there. Uh, two, the serenity serenity prayer still has meaning, and, and it's you know, change the things that that uh, you can change, and those that you can't, uh, you're just gonna have to let that go. Um, the third, third and fourth are kind of kind of tied tied together. I, I would tell them that um, um, you know, don't don't be afraid to ask for help. And if somebody offers help, don't, don't turn it away. Don't, don't be too proud to, to not accept help from others or ask for help, um, you know, cause it's, it's, it's important that, that, you know, as, as you go through this process, that the recovery, you, you can't own the recovery. You know, the recovery is not, not your recovery to, to own, it's your community's recovery and uh, engaging your community to the greatest degree you can in that process and giving them that opportunity to take some ownership in it. Not, not only does that give you lots of other brains to pick and, and relationships to build uh, uh, and, and potential solutions, but, uh, uh, but it also gives those people that you engage in the recovery effort 
you know, some sense of hope and ownership and recovery as well and gives them something to do as opposed to sitting at home wondering you know engage people you know get get them involved and, and engage them in every way that you can think of to, to help problem solve these issues well dr cj huff i want to thank you again for taking time to talk with us today uh, your story it's truly remarkable and there's so many amazing little nuggets of information to take away from for school communities across the country today um, to all those who are listening, if you want to learn more about Dr. C.J. Huff, visit safeandsoundschools.org to read more about his story, the trainings and workshops he has available, and his work with Bright Futures. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you.